Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, can I please speak with Nigugi Wationgo? Yeah, speaking. Hello, this is Paul Holdengraber calling you from the quarantine tapes. I'm so delighted that you could take the time to speak to us today. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Tell me, wh- where do where do I find you, and how have you been living these last seven or eight months of this delirious, dire, dark <laughs> time? <laughs> I know. <laughs> As you know, I am currently distinguished professor of English and comparative literature at the University of California, Irvine. Yes. So I live in, in a place called University Hills, which is literally on the campus, but it has the advantage also of facing the Pacific Ocean. So the Pacific Ocean is literally only five minutes away from my home. Yeah. And 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 what have these these months been like for you? Well, in a way that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two things. Yes. First of all, it's very interesting. This uh, few months, um, in a way, it's as if I was prepared for them. Uh-huh. First, as you know, I have written an epic called uh, "The Perfect Nine in English. It just came out this month, but it came out actually in Kenya last year as uh, uh, Kedamuyuru or Kedamuyuru, right? Now, in this Kedamuyuru, there is an episode involving uh, an invisible foe, right, who cannot be seen. You cannot estimate where he or she is, their shape or look or anything. Uh, he is an invisible foe. So in a way, I, think that I, was, I was anticipating the current <laughs> Invisible four. <laughs> so you were, ima- you were, you were imagine, you, 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 you were imagining it before it it occurred. Here. Yeah, I was imagining four. You know, and, uh, and there are there are nine ninety nine suitors who come to uh, to ask for the hand of the, the ten daughters of the original man and woman uh, for the Gikoyo people. And, um, and since there are so many, uh, 99 for not 10 girls, they are given a task. And one of the tasks is to go back to Mount Kenya and uh, come out a uh, pluck hair, uh, which is supposed to cure all diseases. But this hair grows in the middle of the tongue uh, of a man eating four uh, <laughs> or over. But it's an invisible order, huh? right? Yeah. So you know w- w- what strikes me in what you're saying um, is that literature imagined it before it happened, and you've said uh, so interestingly to my mind that you believe that writers are part of a prophetic tradition. Yeah, actually, true. If you look at the 
<laughs> Sorry, of um, like um, the biblical prophets or any prophet of any religion or character. Yeah. The one thing there, you know, especially those who came before the written word, uh, they were actually, they used their power came from their words, okay? So they were like oral poets or oral, well, <laughs> they used their imagination to uh, see uh, what might happen in the future. So I think of writers today as part of that prophetic tradition. All those biblical prophets used the one thing they had. They were not wealthy. Some of them lived in the desert eating honey only. But the one thing they had was the power of the word. The power of the right. oral. The power of the oral word. Yeah. I only think of that that wonderful line, Nigugi, of of Tristan Tsara, who said that thought was made in the mouth. Who's saying in that one? Sorry. Trist Can you say that again? Tristan Tsara, one of the founders of Dadaism, said that okay. said that uh, thought, la pensée, thought was made in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. In oh. the same way, thought made in, that's a good one. Made in the mouth. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> and how how does that yeah. how does that resonate for you? What what comes to your mind? No, actually there's an element of truth in that because you know thought comes okay, thought comes out swaddled in sounds. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, thought for it to be effective has to wear sound uh, clothing if you like, right? <laughs> and so Literally, thought does come from the mouth in a way when you can think of it. Yeah, I've never thought of it qu- quite that way, but how uh, wonderful. Uh, and, you, and you've spoken so much about orature and how it led you to literature. Yeah, because the original, uh, before literature, there was orature in all communities, okay? Mm-hmm. Because all communities, even before the written word was invented, so to speak, people spoke, they used sounds, okay? Uh, and so when in the Bible, St. John, it said, in the beginning was the word. Huh? Yes. And the word became God. Uh, I think in Hindu Sanskrit, they say uh, the sound Om, Om. The sound was, the, <laughs> was our beginning, so to speak. Yeah? So in the beginning was sound. Huh? In the beginning was word and the word became this and became flesh or something like that right yeah. right it became yeah. something so became... we look at the primacy of the sound yeah and of course for human being the sound comes from our, our <laughs> mouth our lips or our tongue <laughs> right and that's why in many languages like in our language we call language the tongue huh? you know it's amazing you should say Sorry, that uh, in, 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 in yeah. Uh, Nigugi, in preparing to talk to you, I, I was reminded, particularly with the last comment about Orich, I was reminded by a book that came out recently, and I wonder if you know it, and I love it so much, a book by Lewis Hyde called A Primer for Forgetting. And he begins this way, he says, Many years ago, reading about the old oral cultures where wisdom and history 
lived not in books but on the tongue, I found my curiosity aroused by one brief remark. Oral societies, I read, keep themselves in equilibrium by sloughing off memories which no longer have present relevance. I'm wondering, right. I'm wondering how that, that conspires to your own theories. Yeah, also memory. Um, yeah. First of all, let's, let's be clear. All languages were oral before they became written. So there is a way in which, I think it's Plato, I think one of the, or the dialogues of Plato, they talk about the, the relation between the oral and the written. But quite clearly, the, the, the spoken word or the spoken sound was prior to its signification by written symbols. Okay. So there's a way in which the written imitates the, uh, the spoken. Okay. Right. Yeah. But the spoken is always sound before it became a word. (laughs) So the sound was prior to the word, so to speak, because the word is organized sound, just like music is organized sound. Words are also organized sound. And there's a similarity between uh, language and music in this way. Every language has its own unique musicality. This is a musicality of language which distinguishes one language from another. And you can never, the one, although translations are great, but almost impossible to translate the musicality of one language into another. All right. Uh, just like musical instrument, every uh, every musical instrument has its own musicality. Say the piano can never sound like the guitar or the violin, but you can play the same melody with a violin or with a piano, and you can tell, oh, that's a piano. But the melody is familiar. You may have heard it, you know, played through violin. Okay. So it means that the, the piano has its own unique musicality in the same way as the violin has its own musicality, right? And no musicality is higher than another. For instance, you don't say, I like the piano, it's the one which is musicality, unique musicality, therefore let us destroy all the other instruments and yeah. leave it to the piano. I see the what same you're saying. Yeah, I was about <laughs> I was about I was about to say I, I see Nigugi where you're going and in a sense one might uh. one might say and correct me if I'm wrong that knowing many languages is knowing many instruments and perhaps, you know, creating an orchestra. Yeah, when languages come together, uh, just like musical instruments, when the piano and the violin come together, they can form an orchestra or quartet or any other um, sort of arrangement of uh, uh, instruments. In the same way, languages, when they come together on the basis, not of hierarchy, but on the basis of a network of equals or a network, a network of equal give and take. Right. They actually can reach and reach each other. Right. 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 And yeah. and and and, 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 and translations also. They can also and they speak one language, which are called translations. <laughs> you, you, you've said something that I find extraordinary. You said monolinguism is a carbon monoxide of civilization. Yes, I think. 
monolingualism is a carbon monoxide of cultures. Yes. And uh, multi, uh, what else? And uh, multilingualism is the oxygen of cultures, you know. Uh, uh, because one language in a hierarchical relationship to other suffocates the other languages, literally. But in a network, equal give and take, they enrich each other, right? <laughs> you know, languages have, have borrowed words from other languages quite happily, yeah. All European languages, at least Western European languages, borrowed uh, from the Greek and from Latin, for reason, okay? And those words borrowed from other languages, really, really, <clears throat> they become uh, domesticated in a new language right. and become part of that language. So that way it enriches that language, but not on the basis of oppressing another language. Yeah. Right. No, you've 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 so languages. Yeah, you've can, you've spoken so can, wonderfully when you say, "I believe there is no no big or small language." Yes. Uh, yeah. The, the question I don't I I don't need minority languages. I don't. <laughs> I don't. You know. I mean, because it's like it's like saying. <laughs> Once again, we get the example of musical instruments. Right. You don't say that the piano or the organ is so huge. It's more of a musical instrument than the uh, three-string violin, or in Agricola people, we used to have one-string violin, huh? right? Called Wadede, you see. But they are not, it has got the, in their musicality. So, I don't like using what minority languages. The terms which I like to use is marginalizing and marginalized. Yeah, because when you talk of marginalized languages, they're talking about question of power. Somebody affords a power has marginalized them, right? And then there are those who marginalize others. So all imperial languages marginalize the uh, the languages of the uh, of the of the of the uh, or the colonel, or the colonized for reasons. All right, they do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, so yeah, we have to look at languages. You look at languages differently. Uh, we can see that in every case of where one people have conquered another, uh, they use the language of power to marginalize the languages of the conquered. Okay, so I use that. And a language can be a very big language, say like Hindi, uh, and it can be marginalized by a tiny language, <laughs> which is the language of imperial power for a reason. Yeah. So I don't like using the word minority languages. Uh, uh, I rather use marginalizing and marginalized, yeah, because we're talking about the question of power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and take, taking you you back into into a, a difficult moment in your life, a moment of imprisonment. How how did in fact your imprisonment affect your your very thinking about language? Oh yes, I was going to mention that as well when you asked me how I am doing. I mentioned the fact. <laughs> That I did the perfect nine with a, an invisible four as part of the narrative. Huh? But the other thing I was going to mention is, you know, in 19 December 1977 to December 1978, I was in a maximum security prison uh, placed there by the Kenya government for having written a play in my mother tongue in the Koyo language. Now, for the first 
three weeks, I think, yeah, of my three or some months of my incarceration anyway, I was in what they call internal segregation. That is, you live in the same compound, but none of the other prisoners are allowed to speak to you, right? So you are locked up in your own place, or you keep a distance from the other prisoners, or they keep a distance from you. So I've been joking that with this corona, <laughs> with this colonization by the coronavirus, eh? <laughs> the see prison had prepared me for the lockup. Yeah. <laughs> when when Hello? When, you, yeah. when you yes I am I'm just thinking about mm. everything you said. When when you were a, a, a young man also you got to spend time with Langston Hughes I read and I'm 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 wondering if you can give us a sense of of what that was like and what that encounter was like for yeah, you. Yeah, that that encounter with Langston Hughes is actually was very important. Let me describe it to you a little bit. Please do. Okay, it is there. I've told this story in my memoir yes. called Birth of a Dream Weaver, uh, which is about my becoming a writer. I was then an undergraduate at Makrere University College, which was in Kampala, Uganda, and it used to be an overseas college of the University of London at the time. Uh, because in those days, Uganda and Kenya we are still British colonies, okay? And in 1962, there was a conference of writers of English expression, and I was invited to it because although I was in my second year, I had already published a couple of short stories, okay? And I'd already written a novel, although not published. But anyway, I was invited to this conference, and it brought together all the writers in Africa, most of the writers in Ang- in Africa who had already been published in English. Okay, Kino Achebe was there, Ole Sonka was there, uh, Ezekiel Mfalele, you know, was you know also there. But in addition to that, uh, Langston Hughes was a special guest of the conference, right? So that's how I met him. Extra- but the most interesting encounter is when one day he asked me to go and show him Kampala. And I was very flattered. Uh, going to show Larson his Kampala. I said, yes, of course. And I was dreaming of the, you know, Kampala is full of cathedrals and uh, king's palaces and temples, wonderful residential areas. So I was imagining I was going to show him all those, all those wonders of Kampala, right? You know, so we walked and the first place we stopped was actually a place called Wandegaya, which was a run, in those days, it was a run down area of uh, Kampala next to the university. You know, there were drunks and loud music and artisans making things and so on, you know. And we stopped there. And last time he was, I remember being just very fascinated by the people, what they were doing and so on, you know. Uh, you know, sort of, and I was thinking, ah, I want to show him the really good, the really modern places, the modern Kampala. And I'm telling you, <laughs> you're so fascinated with just being around, you know, that when we finished, he didn't want to go any further. <laughs> you're satisfied. We walked back to Makere. So I remember that very much. I remember how he was dressed in simple carcass type of clothes. And me, I was dressed in, uh, uh, oh my God, a tuxedo. I mean, <laughs> and full <laughs> tie. And <laughs> 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 so I always remember 
the very famous writer, uh, so simply dressed. Yeah. Uh, what did they teach you? Did it teach among the people? Did they teach and you me, something? Yeah. I'm a correct undergraduate, dressed like a steward going to a cocktail party, uh, <laughs> and standing out very awkwardly in this place where they are full of drunks and uh, people. <laughs> <laughs> brewing illegal beer and you know cursing, singing loud music, you know. And <laughs> yeah, so I always remember that one as an encounter with Langston Hughes. Yeah, oh, how how phenomenal! Yeah. You know, we were talking about orature before and how it led you to literature. I'm wondering, Hello? Uh, uh, we were talking about orature before and how it led you to literature. And I'm curious, Nigugi, can you can you say something more about the role the role of of storytelling in your upbringing? You, you've yeah. said you've said you've said this wonderful line where you say. I believe the best storyteller is the one who has the anxiety of expectation. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's why I, def- I define... First of all, I grew up in... A, in a, my first experience of uh, orature or literature or whatever, storytelling anyway, was as orature, as oral, the orally transmitted story. Yeah. Uh, in my book, Dreams in a Time of War, I talk about how we used to meet in one of my mother's houses, and uh, and my father that is had I had four mothers, you know, and one father. So we used to meet at each of the mother's houses in the evening, and we'd hear, you know, uh, stories. Now the way I look at back on the storytelling is that I found it very interesting that somebody could tell the story whose outline you all knew, and there are some people who could tell the same story and make it feel as if it was new, right? Same facts, same characters, same ending, and so on. So I come to the theory that a good storyteller is the one who is able to raise the anxiety of expectation Mm. and then fulfill it. Mm. Because you raise that anxiety of expectation and you don't fulfill it, it's very disappointing to the listener. Mm -hmm. So there are some people who can tell the same story, but they are somehow in their telling, they are able to raise the anxiety of expectation and then they fulfill it. Yeah. And that's a good storyteller for me. Yeah. It's a, be- it's a beautiful way. It's a beautiful mm. way of 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 uh, describing um, storytelling and and the hope you the hope you get when you hear a story. It's it's like the the best kind of of joke where there is a, a punchline. But the problem with the punchline is that you you you're afraid you won't understand it and you know which is always also a level of anxiety especially when someone tells you you know this is a very funny story it's always a very bad always always a very bad beginning nigugi yeah. in, in closing there there is a line i i want to read to you and have you react to i once had occasion to speak to the the poet the very great poet ws merwin and he said, and Merwin, and Merwin said, what you remember saves you. Can you say that again? What you remember saves you? Yeah, huh? yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's actually very profound. Now, 
I mean, when you say remember, we always talk about memory, really, in a way, okay? Yeah, yes. And memory, we are nothing as human beings without memory. Huh? You may have seen or encountered people who, for some reason, through trauma or some or old age, uh, have lost memory. Huh? And it's like they are physically very fine, but they are not really there, right? When you see they don't connect with anything, with anybody they know or any history and so on. So memory, very, very important. And if you look at colonization of any people, it's an attempt to colonize, try to suppress or to bury the memory of the colonized with the memory of the colonizer, okay? Right. Through language and the entire naming system. I've talked about the politics of memory in my book called Something Torn and New. And one thing I found in all colonizing situations, apart from imposition of language of the colonizer on the colonized, it's also the renaming of places. So New York, when it's owned by the Dutch, they call it New Amsterdam. When the English came, they say, no, it's New York, right? But before New Amsterdam and New York, there was a name of that place by the people who lived there, Native Americans. They have a name for that place. So the new naming system varies the memory connoted by the previous name of the place. Okay. So what you remember is very important. We're talking about memory. It's memory that makes us build the future and see possibilities. Because I see we have memory to compare what has happened with what is happening. And same memory is connected with imagination because we can project the future or happening that will come in time for the next minute or the next hour or the next year. Or a building which you imagine in the head and you see that picture there as memory and then we're able to give to an architect who is able to uh, build a house based on that image which I have in the uh, well <laughs> in the head which have been retained through memory. You know, Negugi, I always think very strongly of this word itself, right? The word remember, which literally yeah. means putting the members back together. Yeah, in fact, my something, my book, Something Torn and New, in Kenya, it was published under the title Remembering uh, Africa. Mm. Remembering in the two senses of uh, memory, but also in the sense of putting things together. They dis- dismembered part being put together, right? Yeah. So I call it Remembering Africa. That's how the title under which it was published in Kenya, right? Yeah. Nigugi, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you, a pleasure and a privilege. And stay well and stay looking at the Pacific. And I, I hope we, we meet before long. Okay, thank you very much. No, you thank, know, thank, thank you. I really you. appreciate the conversation. Thank you so yeah. much. All the best to you. Stay safe. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.